Hello, and welcome to the Scrawls on Cinema podcast. I'm your host, Cody Workman, and today we have a wonderful guest, Mr. Cash Robinson. He is a Scrawls on Cinema editor at large. He's a very close friend, has an awesome YouTube channel. Cash, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Uh, it's really great to hear your voice, actually. I was just thinking about that. Um... Uh, you know, with quarantine and everything like that. Right. It's been a while. It's been a while since I've gotten to talk to so many of y'all. We, we've been good friends, Cash and I. We've grown grown close this year. Then even throughout quarantine, it was, we've been keeping in touch. So it's great yeah. to have you on. I'm very excited. You just recently put out a piece on Paul Thomas Anderson. This was last week. Yes. Um, about a week ago. And this piece is as a kind of like an overview of Paul Thomas Anderson's career. And Paul Thomas Anderson is going to be kind of our main focus for today's podcast. And I was wondering if you could maybe go over some of the highlights of the article that you published for our listeners. And then uh, we'll transition a bit into the main film that we're talking to about today. Yeah, sure. So the um, so like you mentioned, it's a uh, a bit of a guide to uh anderson's career um and the first movie in the article uh which is actually the movie i, I would say that made me uh, both interested in in film as as a uh academic pursuit and also as a, as a career um uh is there will be blood um because when, when i initially saw it uh it was it was like it was not really like any other movie I'd seen because you know as uh, Sam mentioned in his episode um, I had a similar kind of uh, growing up with movies where you know I was always watching them you know with family or friends but it, it didn't really extend beyond a, uh, a social pursuit I guess you could say and so around the time that I watched There Will Be Blood I was really uh, figuring out that you know, maybe I want to go into film. And so I started just trying to, with no real um, <laughs> methodology, just like finding movies and starting watching them because it was no, before that point, the only time I'd ever see a movie was if it was at the theater or if my dad or someone was like, hey, you want to come watch, uh, you know, Terminator or something like that. Um, so I watched Starby Blood and it was, totally unlike, you know, any of the other movies I'd, I'd really ever seen. And it really just kind of, kind of escaped me at first, to be honest, because it's very, it's not non-traditional, I would say, but it's, you know, it's different than, than a lot of, uh, yeah, than a lot, yeah, for sure. I remember when I first watched this, did, now what, what, I was curious, because I always ask this, because I'm obsessed with physical media. Did you watch this? streaming when was the first time you watched it like, I bought, how did you watch it i uh i watched it on a blu-ray i bought a i bought the blu-ray oh. and i got the like a blu-ray drive for my uh yes. computer and watched it nice oh that is that 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 that's wonderful okay that's what that was my first question because some people i'm not not being mean but it's like some people they're <laughs> like oh i streamed it and i'm just like i'm so old uh so that that brings me a lot of a lot of warmth right there yeah but you're right though this isn't really as um, I, I think you're right in saying that it's not a conventional story, or yeah, at least exactly. not a conventional narrative, right? And it does have this very, you know, at the heart of it, you know, I, I haven't seen it in a couple of years, uh, but it's one of those movies that's just, you know, 
you watch and you're just immediately taken back by uh, the performance by Daniel yes. Day Lewis, which is so prominent. And I think you did a great write up um, on this picture in your review um, or kind of your overview, I should say. And I think um, it's one of those movies that to me, when I think about it's it's like one of those when when someone starts talking about like at least like the most recent like films of the 21st century that really just have invaded um not necessarily popular culture but like film culture in general i think of that film kind of along the veins yes. of like uh Mulholland drive or something where it's just like this is one yeah. of the most major film events really of the last 20 years um, and I think that's a testament to Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, filmmaking abilities and, uh, you know, writing and directing credits on that film. Um, and I, I think agree. it's, a, I, I, I totally agree with you that it is probably, you cannot do any better if you've never seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film than starting with There Will Be Blood. Um, it really is like, like that's going to really, I think, uh, get you pilled. You know, was that the first, that was, that was the first Paul Thomas Anderson film yes. that you saw? Yes, I saw that, and then uh, The Master, and then Phantom Thread. I think that was the order. Mm. Um, and There Will Be Blood, just, just a little bit more like on that. It's actually like, <laughs> I've seen it a few times now. I think maybe four or five times, and it's, it's kind of like a, maybe just to me, it's kind of something of a comedy, I think, because there are some parts that I think are like, indisputably hilarious um you know because Danny Day-Lewis he's, he's so I mean he's he's got such energy and you know he's, he's obviously committed like he always is but you know he, he has so many great like facial expressions like he does I mean nobody listening can see it but you know he does the like you know like that face. oh yes uh, he does he's that got, for the listeners yeah. you're doing also Cash has this just exquisite mustache again maybe we I'll see if we can post a photo of you with the, with the, I'll, I'll talk to the uh, chief editor, but we can, you know, it's such a great Daniel Plainview mustache. It's just perfect. So he, fitting uh, for this film. He does, he does that a lot. And then, you know, the scene where he's beating up um, Eli, well, the first time, I, mean, I guess this is a spoiler discussion. I mean, kind of spoilers for, for Paul Thomas. Spoiler-ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but when the, the first time he starts hitting on Paul Dano. Yeah, yeah, and he's in the oil field and he's like, why don't you come make my boy here again? And he's like, just, oh, there you go, slapping the mud on him. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it really is like, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of twisted, but I think it's actually really funny. Um, oh, for sure. I honestly think anytime Paul Dano gets beat up, it's funny. Like, it's just, you know, I think he's one of the few actors where if physical harm comes to the character, it's funny. <laughs> it's like really like prisoners hilarious just just a <laughs> laugh riot that does, that that's <laughs> it does have um that kind of and there's a guy in the master too um the one who plays master's editor and he plays daniel plainview's brother and there will be blood. oh he I also uh has that kind of like please beat up on me look um <laughs> 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 Cause, cause it happens in, in both of those. Um, but, but yeah, so I saw there will be blood, uh, and it really made me interested in, uh, in trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do, um, as a writer or, you know, aspiring filmmaker and also just the kind of stuff that I wanted to watch. Um, and I didn't see phantom thread. No, I didn't see the master 
until probably um, six months or more after I watched Obi Blood. So I, I saw the Obi Blood one time and then kind of didn't didn't revisit it or any of PTA's other films for, for a good while. Um, and, and obviously we'll talk more about that when we're talking about the master, but uh, you, you mentioned the article. So um, uh, the, the next one, I think it was Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights, yeah, that's yes. the next one that you say. Yeah. Which is interesting because this is a movie that I've seen twice and I, um, it's, it's loved by so many people. And I think it, I agree with you that it is just, you know, you have this great uh, line in here that's like, this movie is just cool. There's no other way to say it, right? And right. I think that's true. I think the movie's very cool. But in my opinion, beyond that, it, I, I'm, I'm kind of left empty-handed with this one, especially with movies like Saturday Night Fever and yeah. Goodfellas existing, which is like borrowing a lot. And I get that most movies do that. Yeah. But to me, you know, this is interesting because when I was reading this piece, I, I was reminded of how I discovered Paul Thomas Anderson. And I might be the only person at least our age who actually went chronologically i saw heart eight and then i saw boogie nights and then i saw there will be blood and punch drunk love but it was like those first two and i thought heart eight i still think heart eight is like top three. Oh Oh, yeah it it is great it really it's a great i think that's the one that like everyone always sleeps on just because it's so small but it's I mean, Philip Baker Hall, just terrific. But let's talk a little bit about Boogie Nights before we start getting into a little um, bit more of the deeper cuts. I, uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying about Boogie Nights, and I actually would agree a little bit. Um, I know I gave it five stars, but that was, you know, could be recency bias or, you know, just, just pure, I mean, like, cool. And it's a cool, it's cool. Right, right. And, like, the cool factor alone, I was like, you know what? And actually, my, uh, my, dad had seen this movie and i didn't know and so i brought it up and he was like you've seen boogie nights do you know what do you know what happens in that movie <laughs> um, oh no and um but it is it is really cool and it but you're right that it it, it doesn't to me anyway have that same sort of almost like meditative feeling as as you know punch drunk love onward uh i would say um but even even in in boogie nights there are some some sequences like uh the the dark diggler's first day on set for for lack of a better uh (laughs) uh you know phrase or um when he's when he becomes a, a male prostitute for that short time you know there are like little little nuggets in there that i think really um that really like rise above the rest of the film not that the rest is bad but but they really stand out and it's right it's like you know there is obviously something here and and when i think about pta being 26 when he made this movie it's such a like it's such an inspiration but at the same time it's just so depressing because like (laughs) that's pretty much impossible i would say now (laughs) i know what do i do now i i I host a podcast <laughs> That's what I'm doing, and, and PTA already had hard aid was working on Boogie Nights, and uh, yeah, it's well, um, and it's and it is an, I mean, it is a it's a ridiculously entertaining movie. I mean, it, it's the cast alone. I mean, if uh, any of these people are worth you know watching any movie for, but putting them all together, it is really quite amazing. Burt Reynolds, of course, the late oh movie, yeah, who just who? uh who didn't really like the film, I don't think, or or Paul Thomas Anderson for that matter. 
think he, he like his quote is you know calling him like an asshole or a, right a, something along those lines. I think he he was really uh, I, I understand that he was almost like there was a rumor that he was going to boycott the Oscars or something because he wasn't <laughs> happy with the movie and just didn't. You know. Have you have you ever read that piece about how Warren Beatty was <laughs> wanting to be in Boogie Nights and Paul Thomas Anderson? was really excited because he thought that Warren Beatty wanted the Burt Reynolds part. And then he realized after like a month of talking that Warren Beatty wanted to be Dirk Diggler <laughs> in like 1998 or seven, whenever this came out, 97, I think. And I'm like, what? That is ludicrous, Warren. What are you thinking? The yeah, that, that would be a totally different movie. Um, <laughs> it would wow. be hilarious. I, would, I mean, I would watch that. I mean, and it is, a, I mean, I'm not trying to diss on the movie. Like, I think it is really good. Unlike, uh, <laughs> I, I, unlike Magnolia, which I'm not a fan of, like. I, that's the, the only one I haven't seen, actually. Interesting. Or. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the, like, few direct, I guess not few, but he's like, I, I've seen all of them. So that, the, the Magnolia is the only one that I've seen that I'm like, absolutely not. Like, I just cannot, <laughs> cannot do, I don't like any of this. <clears throat> Whereas uh, even Boogie Nights and, um, you know, some of the other films, uh, that I'm not as I mean I really like most of them. I, there's really none of them that I would even like say is like not worth watching more than once. Um, yeah. But but even Boogie Nights, I'm I, I still like this is as you said it's really really cool. The cast is super fun. It's a blast. It's a spe it's going to be even more of a blast if you haven't seen Saturday Night Fever or Goodfellas or um, Band of Outsiders or anything that's. PTA is really pulling from because it's you know it's like some of those movies like you know you watch like Pulp Fiction for the first time and you're like oh yeah. my gosh this is the best movie ever then you start watching like, guitar <laughs> movies and like uh, you know all these French gangster films from the 70s and you're like oh wait a second this is just Pulp Fiction and yeah. um, but it's still it's still great I mean it's still a really great piece of entertainment and I do think you're right there are scenes that do stick out there that kind of you know bring out a different side uh, to the film and it kind of rises above the rest of the kind of ludicrous stuff. I always remember the thing that I always latch on to, and it's not even that important uh, to the story, is this scene in the donut shop with Don Cheadle yes. where there is a uh, armed robbery and it's a very like striking moment of violence, which the movie isn't especially violent. There are a few moments of violence, but that's probably the most, yes. maybe the most violence certainly towards another person i don't want to give any of the other spoilers away that happens and i um always found that moment very shocking and i think that's one of the things that paul thomas anderson is very good at um especially when you talked about there will be blood but that opening the, the violence and there will be blood uh, as well as in you know boogie nights i um, and to a inherent vice yeah. I think, oh, yeah. are all you know which inherent vices uh we can get to that like that's my favorite uh pta but i think he does violence in a way that's very engaging, very interesting. It's very startling and it yeah. feels very real, uh, even if the films themselves feel a bit, you know, stylish for their, for their own good. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think Boogie Nights is another fun one to watch, but I really love that you put Punch Drunk Love in here because I think this is one of the sweetest little movies it is. Uh, that he's made. I think it is one of the most, it's, it, it's certainly the strangest. I think it's probably its smallest. Like, I think it's even a bit, it, I mean, obviously it had to have cost more than Heart 8, but Heart 8 to me feels much bigger 
in terms of stakes yeah. and scope. Right. And the story is kind of, I mean, I suppose they go to Hawaii and punch drunk love, but I, <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, I feel like it gets a bit, uh, you know, the stakes and whatnot are a bit higher. It's very and personal. Personal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think punch drunk love is very personal. And I think, um, I think like the casting of Adam Sandler here is just absolutely brilliant. I watched this film. I want to say I watched this film. Like it's probably been about like 17 months. I've seen it like three times the most recent watch must've been like a year and a half ago. I guess that's 18 months. Um, yeah, because years are even. They have even months in them. So, but yeah, no, I, I think it's really good. I didn't know if you had any any uh, thoughts on Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, I, uh, I, think, I think Punch Drunk Love is the, I haven't seen Magnolia, like I mentioned, but I think that was the last one of his that I saw. Um, and it really is a necessary component to his sort of, uh, project for lack of a better word because um i mean i mean since you've seen magnolia maybe you can you know attest oh, to this but oh but, oh this movie is so much more focused it's so much more it's it, oh, so much more realized i know there's going to be people in the comments who are going to like think I, they're, i'm going to get like boycotted but um it's this i <laughs> yeah i agree with you that this is the this is maybe more so than even there will be blood the like big turning point in uh, not necessarily tur- not for turning point sounds like he was bad to, at the beginning but i think this is the movie where he like really starts to mature as a filmmaker yeah i agree um, and everything onward has been really really interesting um but yeah I, I definitely agree with what you're saying right here um even yeah and even i think pretty much in in almost every way about the film there's obviously uh like you said a turning point or it's like a it's like a landmark, I guess you could say, because, you know, everything from uh, the, like the music is very, you know, different and very inspired, percussive, very, um, oh, that was a huge strike of lightning. It's like storming. I know, it's storming, right? <laughs> we're in the, we're, 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 we're doing this remotely, but we live, we live in the same city at the moment. So it's like just <laughs> storming outside, but. Um, um, it's very, very, uh, very percussive like i was saying very um inspired visually also it's uh, it's such a not not that boogie nights or you know hard eight weren't visually impressive but but or even magnolia magnolia looks good even though it's a bad movie but (laughs) but um (laughs) punch our glove is is very obviously uh inspired in a different way i would say than the others um you know a lot of the colors really just they're so much more natural but at the same time they're really vibrant and um and then of course sandler you mentioned who's who's really wonderful and and i i don't i haven't really been one of those people that um is like a sandler hater because of his past films you know um because i always i always feel like in any of his films that he's he's good you know um but it takes yeah a, i mean he is good he's a great actor um and it but it takes something like you know, Punch Drunk Love or, or even Uncut Gems to really show just how good of a an actor he really is. Right. I agree. Yeah. And he he always has this, I mentioned it a little bit in the article, but he always has this, you know, kind of rage about him in, in all of his movies, which I think, <laughs> um, I think obviously is like a, a big point of Punch Drunk Love. And um, I, I don't. I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty sure that this was written 
after he knew Sandler was in because it seems so like perfectly, it seems like such a perfect fit for him. Right. Yeah. I I think I read an interview where he had said after Magnolia, because Magnolia, I mean, it still is, it's still considered one of the best movies of the past 25 years uh, in a lot of critical circles. It got a lot of acclaim and they asked him what his next projects were. And he said, my next film is going to be an Adam Sandler movie. And then I'm going to do a movie with Daniel Day Lewis. And um, that's what he did. Yeah, I guess that is what he did. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, but it, it, it is just a really delightful little movie. I think it's so worthy of being put on with these four right here when you're talking about PTA. Because I think, you know, a lot of the times when you think immediately of Paul Thomas Anderson, you're going to think of There Will Be Blood or even Boogie Nights or some of these much bigger films. <laughs> Um, and Punch Drunk Love is a bit more of a deeper cut that I don't think everyone gets around to as yeah. early as I think they should. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think that's a great way. I think like, like if I had seen, I think I saw Punch Drunk Love was the fourth one I or fifth film I think I had seen of his career. But I think if I had seen that like the first or second, I would have been much more, you know, adamant about seeing or third, as you list right here, much more adamant about seeking out the rest of his films, which he doesn't really have that many films. He only has eight. Right. Um, <clears> which, <throat> you know, Clint Eastwood did that many films in the last decade, which is... <laughs> he did, he did. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, not as prolific. But, I mean, he does still make some just fantastic movies. Now, before we move on to The Master, which I know we're going to talk about uh, quite in-depth because we both just watched it today, I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about Inherent Vice just because this movie, right. whenever I get a chance to talk about Inherent Vice, I have to talk about it. This was the first R-rated movie I saw in a theater. I hope my oh, parents really? are. I hope my parents are. They probably are. I, don't, they don't, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't told them I have this podcast yet. So <laughs> I, this is the only movie I've ever snuck into a theater to see because I was 16 at the time. Oh, wow. And I, had to, I bought a ticket to see The Imitation Game you remember that movie with Benedict uh, Cumberbatch? Yeah, I don't think I ever saw it, actually. Oh, I, it's, you didn't miss anything. But I bought a ticket for that, which was playing right next door. <laughs> and I remember just nervously walking out of the theater and sliding to Inherent Vice. Because I had just, the, the, the trailers were so good. I was so excited right. to see Walking Phoenix. Um, I had already seen The Master, so I was so curious to see what, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson was going to do. And truth be told, like, I, I watched this movie, like, three months ago like I don't, I don't know how recently you've seen it it's been a few um, months it's been a few months but like kind of recent and it is one of the movies like one of the few movies like i mean it is that it it's unlike anything that he's done in terms of vibes for me i think this is very yeah. much a hangout movie the script gets absolutely bonkers i have not read any <laughs> i i had never read any pension i have no. a copy of gravity's rainbow that oh, yeah. sits on my bedside. And I, I've opened it up like twice and then I've just gotten to, to just, uh, you know, it's a tough read. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's it great. Is, yeah. I just, I'm like, but this is one of those movies. This is one of my all time favorite movies. So certainly it recently, one of some of my favorite recent films, um, of, I guess I'm six years old now, oh, but, um, <laughs> lots of reminiscing on yeah, my age. It, it would be only, a, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh no no! I was just like uh, saying nothing, but yeah no. I think what were you gonna say? I think it, just, it would it would make a a great double feature with the Beach Bum. I think. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Both films <laughs> occupy a very similar place in my mind. 
um, uh, and there are I, there are some moments in Inherent Vice I think are as sweet. I think it's I think it's kind of a I, I don't want to say it's a culmination of all of what I love about Paul Thomas Anderson, but it has a lot of that sweetness that you see in Punch Drunk Love um, between uh, Chasta and Doc, who are Walking uh, Phoenix, and I yes. blanking on the woman <laughs> who plays Chasta, who knocks out of the park. Um, but it's, they have this beautiful chemistry, but you also have these very few, but they are there, these kind of shocking jolts of violence that happen, uh, particularly towards the end that are really, you know, kind of really bring the film back into this kind of real world setting. And then it gets resolved. And then you get that wonderful comforting feeling of just kind of going back and seeing everything play out. And the cast is just, I mean, the cast is just so good. I mean, all of his films have... Mm such impeccable yep. cast. I mean, he always gets together a great group of folks, but I mean, just the, <laughs> the, the laughs here are so frequent. I mean, this is just one of the funniest movies that I have seen in a hot second. Um, and I think Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't really get a lot of credit. I liked what you were saying about There Will Be Blood, that there are these really deeply funny moments. Yeah, he is it. funny. He is a He's very funny. funny. He's a really funny writer. And that you certainly see that in Phantom Thread. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Which that... is another film that I guess we can also talk about. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on the hair advice before we move on to Phantom. We're just kind of going through all of them today. Yeah. Well, Hoy, <laughs> I guess we, we should talk about Phantom Thread, too. Uh, and then we will hop back into the master. Um, yeah, so... Uh... I, I do actually want to rewatch Inherent Vice. Um, before we move on to Phantom Thread, I would just say that it's it's very impressive to me, because I haven't read a lot of Pinchon, but... Uh, I've, I've read The Crying of Block 49, and then I have um, Gravity's Rainbow and some of his others. I have Inherent Vice. I haven't read it yet, but um, just from reading The Crying of Block 49, it's very impressive to me that someone could take a pension writing and turn it into a film at all. Because, you know, like you said, it's a very difficult read, and he goes on all sorts of tangents and, you know, rabbit holes that, like, at least when I was reading... Uh, lot 49 i was trying to imagine it like as a movie in my head and i was like how would you even go about this because it's almost <laughs> like you have to like graph out the the book as you read it to like understand it um so i think that's very impressive and it and he uh i think pta must be a pretty big pension fan um i i want to say he is i i think i had read in an interview that like pension like gave gave pta the blessing um or something along that because because inherent vice is a somewhat recent novel uh, yeah right i think it was like published in like the 2006 i don't quote me i might be way off here uh, uh, if there's any penchant wait i'm gonna look this up let's see this is so great that we you know I, why have i not been using the internet on these podcasts um <laughs> it's true but yeah it's true <laughs> um it came out in 2009, 2009. That's crazy. Right. Yeah, so. yeah, it's very recent. Very recent. So it was like, I believe his most recent work. I want to say there was a rumor that Thomas Pynchon made a cameo in Inherent Vice, but I don't know really. What oh, Thomas... really? Yeah, I, I don't, don't quote me, but. I honestly me, don't but know I... what the guy looks like, to be honest. Yeah, I know. It's one of those, like, I, I don't know what he would look like if I saw him. But I think you're right, though, that because, you know, like, Pynchon's so well known for those rabbit holes and just, like, very lucid type of storytelling. And I think PTA kind of really captures that. 
Yes. And that this movie is like, I mean, to follow the plot here is a bit of a challenge. Um, I will say I've seen the movie like seven times and it, it, it does get a bit easier the more you watch it, but it is one of those like just bonkers. Like what, how could this happen? What is exactly yeah. happening? You have no idea what any of the characters motives are. You're about as lost as doc, but it is such a just, wonderful warm fuzzy vibe of a film uh and it's one of those movies that i i return to uh quite frequently um and i i would recommend it i would recommend though um i i see why it's not in the article because it is probably <laughs> the most challenging apart from magnolia which is just i wouldn't <laughs> even bother challenging it but it's um <laughs> engaging with it but inherent vice is one of those that i think maybe you should hold off on uh till you've seen a few of the other ptas yeah. just because it's a bit it's a bit much it's a bit hard to immediately engage with um maybe that's not that might not be true for everyone but it's such a such a great film such a great yeah. one love it so so dearly um and i would like to talk a bit about phantom thread because i know you're a big one big fan of phantom yes. thread i have only seen this movie once in theaters which is criminal i need to revisit it because i quite liked it um, it's the second film that he made with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's the only film that Daniel Day-Lewis has ever not used an accent in. It's just Daniel Day-Lewis talking in his real voice. Yes, which is lovely. I might add. It's a lovely voice. Yeah, very lovely voice. Very dashing fellow. I mean, really, I mean, I, I'm sure everyone is in agreement there. I just, I remember growing up hearing about Daniel Day-Lewis, I guess like with Lincoln coming out. I was like, you know, that and uh, The Butcher and Gang to New York. Yes. I was like, always, always associated him with being this kind of big, ugly, nasty, you know, uh, type of man. And turns out, no, he's actually a pretty, you know. Very posh. Posh. Yes. Yeah, very, very <laughs> handsome, dashing man. Although I will say, like, you know, he does do a lot of deranged stuff in films. <laughs> uh, yeah. in, <laughs> even in this film, he does a few. But um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this film, because this is one that you just, you have like a brief little sentence here at the end of the article, but was wondering if uh, there's anything you wanted to say before we get really in depth on the master. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a safe bet that Joseph has now turned off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, dear <laughs> friend, Joseph. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember actually, this is what I love about Joseph. Uh, he is like so not afraid to tell you what he thinks, you know, in the best yeah, way possible. And when I first, I met, I met him when I was working on a short film my first semester here. Yeah, and, at the University of Georgia, yeah. Yes. And we're and, just to, if you're listening, we're talking about our um, editor friend, Joseph Shin, who yes, is an editor at large. Yeah, he has an incredible episode of this podcast that you should stream wherever podcasts are streamed. Um, but the first time I met him was on that set because he was the, uh, the gaffer and he knew, he knew one of my friends who was from Dalton, um, Hannah, if you hear this somehow, awesome. <laughs> uh, and I got to know him a little bit there. And, and one of the first things he told me, cause I had, I had pretty long hair, like, you know, like your, yours is now. And I had a bit of a beard and one of the first things he told me uh, he was like, you need to cut that off. You look like a hick. You need to cut that off. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
time. This is the first time you had met Joseph. It was. It wasn't the very first time, but it was like in in the very beginning of my, you know, personal knowledge of his existence. And you know, his. And then there was another time when I mentioned uh, that I didn't like pink flamingos. I think he called me a bastard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he. Uh, one of the first movies I mentioned around him was Phantom Thread because we were all, you know, driving to say something like that. And he was like, oh my God, no, don't watch Phantom Thread. You won't like it. And I was like, I was like, why? And he's like, he's like, it's terrible. Just don't watch it. You won't like it. Um, so I always, so now we have like this running uh, gag, I guess, about Phantom Thread and how he hates it. And I, I'm not sure if he'll ever watch it again. I wish he would, but uh, maybe he'll change, but yeah, maybe maybe we can sway him in this episode. Uh, right, fa- maybe. Uh, yeah, Phantom Thread. So I, this this to me is definitely one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Just just visually speaking, um, and I think I think PTA actually was the cinematographer on it. I don't. Yeah, he was the DP. And um, is- actually, I think it was like what he said in an interview was he was like. He was the DP, but there were so many people framing shots that he just left the credit blank. Uh, but yeah. I think they technically have like accredited him as being the DP. So it's it's kind of hard to say. I would imagine he's responsible for most of the shots, but I don't who's to say for sure. Um, and I actually think Phantom Thread has a lot in common with the master in a few ways. Um particularly the the two main characters on, that are on sort of a path of, uh, I, w- I would say in Phantom Thread, it's mutual destruction. And then in, in The Master, it's, you know, mutual like domination. Um, and, and that's something that it seems like PTA has always been uh, particularly interested in because if you look at, uh, you know, There Will Be Blood has the same kind of dynamic, dynamic between um, Daniel and Eli um, and then obviously Phantom Thread and the master that he's and and I mean in Boogie Nights too and Hard Eight he's he's always been concerned with uh, with someone and their mentor um, it seems to me but Phantom Thread is, is really interesting because I think I think he's telling on himself also I mentioned this in the article but I think I think it's not a uh, coincidence that you know, he, he has this notorious relationship with Fiona Apple um, in his younger days. And then he comes out with a movie about a guy who is, you know, no other way to put it, just a huge asshole to his wife. And and in the process of being with her, he figures out that he has to have himself destroyed in order to stop, you know, being abusive, mm. which is why he, uh, you know, obviously submits to the, the mushroom the mushrooms, yeah, right? The mushrooms, um, and there's also a bit of the uh, Oedipus complex, right? Yes, also that play yes. in there. Yes, that's all. Yeah, very, very into the psychoanalysis. I think. Uh, yes. I think our Alma, Paul Thomas Anderson is. Yeah, the word Alma means I think I think mother or something like that or nurturing maybe. I don't. I don't. Mm. I don't know Latin, but um, yeah, and it. I, I would even. I would put it about at the same as the master where it seems very just kind of meandering in, in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I do think that there is a good bit there. Um, 
and I mean, I can I can fully understand why nobody would really why someone wouldn't really like it. Um, but something about it is just it's just really appealing to me. Um, like I mentioned, I think I think that's a fascinating dynamic between the two characters. Um, and I think it's interesting to have a character recognize something about themselves that they that they really don't like or, or, or hate. And the way they go about fixing it is to have somebody else basically force them into submission, I think is fascinating. Um, and as you mentioned, it's pretty ginky. Yeah, it is. This movie it's is a really, you know, I, I remember when it came out, there was some 50 shades of gray comparisons. And um, I haven't, I haven't seen the, the or engaged with anything other than that franchise. But from my understanding, I could see maybe a potential parallel between those two, um, you know, uh, ideas, at least. Uh, yeah, I actually I want to see the first 50. I've heard some good things about the first 50 Shades of Grey. <laughs> um, it's the only one, in the, only one of the films directed by a woman, which I've heard, uh, heard the female perspective is much better. And, uh, you know, like the female gaze is much stronger in the first <laughs> yes. film. Than the other two, so sorry to go on the on the oh, kink no, no tangent, but um, no, well, I, you're I right. think yeah, no, but it is, and I think Phantom Thread is one of those movies um, that is. I remember I saw it in theaters. I was living in Kentucky at the time. Um, saw it in a beautiful movie house in Kentucky. I think I saw it there. I actually might have seen it in a different theater down the road, but um, it was this just really, really you know engaging piece. Um, of filmmaking, I think I always think of that New Year's Eve sequence as being yes. one of my favorite, at least in recent memories. You know, sequences that take place on New Year's. I, it's like that, and then I think of the apartment uh, with Billy Wilder. But let's say those are the two. Whenever, when, almost any any New Year's Eve since, um, I always think of that. I always think of Phantom Thread and Smile. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's I think it's a good film. I think you should totally check it out, listeners, if you haven't. Or if you're Joseph Shin and you don't like it, you should try it again. <laughs> All right. So now, um, now I had asked you uh, this week to do a podcast and we, um, I, I know this next film, which we've already talked about a bit, The Master, um, is one of your favorites. It's not your favorite film. And yes. um, kind of this whole podcast idea has been about like exploring people through their favorite movies and i think we're doing a pretty good job of that today um and i was wondering um what are some of the first things that immediately stand out for you when you watch something like the master so um when i was i was introduced to this movie by a very good friend and uh mentor and talented musician um he was the music director at my high school uh, while I was in theater there. And he knew that I was interested in, in film. And so we would occasionally talk about, um, you know, films and he would recommend things to me. And, and he recommended The Master. And I had heard of it before because I went to a, a local um, short film festival and somebody at the director Q&A said it was their favorite movie. Um, and they didn't really expand on it, but, you know, they were like, which favorite movie? He's like the Master by Paul Thomas Anderson. And like, okay, next question. Um, so I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know what to expect. And so when when he recommended it to me, I thought, okay, now I guess this is the time for me to check it out because I'd seen There Will Be Blood, and um, 
it had kind of been on my mind since I watched it. Um, and I think I saw it on, I, saw, I did see this on streaming for the first time, uh, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> and, it's okay, we'll let it slide. <laughs> um, and, and I had no idea what to, what to expect. And it's, it's a very uh, striking opening for sure. Um, because, you know, you get the title card and then cut to just this, this beautiful water, you know, and, and I was like, hmm, that's, that's interesting, you know, that's pretty cool. And then you have the sequence, you know, on the beach and, and it was like four minutes in and, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is like masturbating. And I was like, oh, that's what kind of movie this is, you know, because I was, I was, I've, I've never been really used you to it. You figured things. out what the master stood for. <laughs> right. I was, I was like, oh. Right. Oh, okay. there's a second part to the title that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> yes, um, Bader would be the yeah. second. <laughs> Just have um, to be very explicit here. Yeah, um, flagged by somebody. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like from that point on, I was like, okay, I have, I definitely have no idea what to expect from this movie, and it's not going to be anything like I thought it was going to be because, you know, especially in my early like film watching. Uh, endeavor. I never really watched stuff like that, you know, and or with, you know, a lot of nudity or anything like that, which, you know, is a separate discussion to be had just because I was, I guess, not seeking it out. So, right. I mean, you grew up in Dalton, Georgia, right? Yes, which I know. And, which, yeah. And, and, you know, I grew up in Calhoun for a while. Like, that's where I spent mo all my high school years and uh, middle school years, <laughs> which is the town below Dalton. I lived in Dalton for a year. And then moved to Calhoun. So it's crazy that we live kind of in the same neck of the woods. I can understand, uh, at least if your, you know, high school culture was similar to uh, Calhoun's, which I'm sure it was quite, um, why that might be the case that, you know, certain films, you know, not, ex not that there was anything really wrong. I was, I wasn't especially opposed. It was just a matter of like, yeah. you know, I don't know, like, family clearly does not want me watching you know walking phoenix masturbating into an ocean in the right. living room yeah like it's just not you know and i think it's like it's and you're also a kid right you're in high school it's like you know these are r-rated movies <laughs> yeah so, kinda... and like like i showed my dad there'll be blood and he liked it but i don't think i would ever show him the master because of that you know what i mean right right i could it... i don't think i could show any of my parents the master um, um maybe well, i, I Maybe my mom. I don't know. She might like it, but <laughs> but so, and it's and, and like like we just said, you know, it's not a you have to show the right person this film, because if you show the wrong person, they're gonna look at you only like five minutes in and be like, "What are we watching?" You know, um, right, right. It it might it might turn off the wrong people and on their perceptions <laughs> of you. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also it, it's not even just the the there's the, there's also this like really intense scene involving a woman made out of sand yeah um, yeah all that like walking phoenix does unspeakable things to this um <laughs> to this uh you know <laughs> sand castle woman um and then proceeds to do what he does in the ocean in front of the camera so it's a it's a very you know like um, you're right in that it's like immediately like oh this is this is what where we're going with this movie and i think it's a it does set up what's about to come you know down the road quite yeah uh, certainly with the last scene even uh 
quite effectively. I would agree. Um, and and as you mentioned, there's the, the whole thing with the sand woman. So so like it was it wasn't too far into the film where I realized like, okay, I, I'm I'm in for something that I don't really I know I'm not really gonna understand. Um, and I didn't after the after the first watch. I was like, okay. I mean, I, I thought I was like that was interesting, but I, but it was like you know if you're trying to put a puzzle together and and you, you can't even find the pieces. So I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that that was cool. And I didn't really think about it again until, you know, a few months later. And the second time I watched it, I think it really clicked with me more um, just in terms of, you know, what I thought it was about or, or it, it, it having an actual effect on me. Because um, again, like I mentioned, the first time I saw it, I, w I hadn't, I still wasn't used to, to to films that you would have to kind of put the work in yourself to really decipher and figure out. Um, you know, even though I had that that stage that, you know, most most people interested in film are where they like go on YouTube and they're like, apocalypse now ending, explain, you know. But <laughs> it wasn't like that, you know. It was like, it's up to me to, to find out what this movie means for me, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and, but what immediately strikes me is it's such a uh, very spiritual feeling film to me, not in, the, not in the sense of it necessarily being about God, but it's obviously very much interested in the human spirit and, you know, what makes us who we are. Um, right, the human, ex yeah. Just, yeah, our existence. The, our existence, the experiences we go through, yeah. It's, it's very interesting because I know a lot of people make this um, – you know, I talk about the movie in relation to Scientology. Yes. Um, yeah. and, I, and it does have some of those parallels. At least I, I am. I'm not a Scientology expert. Uh, but from what I can understand, some of the origins of this film have some similar, um, not origins of this film, but origins of the, uh, like, new cult. And that's not really a cult. I mean, I guess it is a cult uh, that's kind of emerging in the 50s here similar to Scientology. What is the name of their cult? It's the change, right? Or the, the cause. They call the, cause, the cause. The yeah. cause. It was a C. I, I literally watched this movie today <laughs> and I'm already just kind of like, what what what, what were the names? But um, I'm going to get out my laptop. But I think, um, yeah, I think that this is one of those movies that I, and I watched it again today. I've seen it. I think this must have been my third or fourth viewing. Um, and you're right that it does have this very spiritual feeling about it it seems very interested in what each of us goes through in our lives um related to like the human experience but i also think it also is very fascinated with this idea of what draws people together yeah um or at least this was something that i noticed a bit today while watching it i there's that kind of subtle implication um that you know freddie and the master had met in uh you know previous lifetime yeah maybe if if you're to believe you know the uh um you know causes it's the cost not the change yeah the causes you know mentality which of it, 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 i mean it really is a fascinating movie i suppose we should give it a bit of a synopsis although i think everyone listening to this have probably already seen it Excuse me, but um, I think maybe it would be good just to refresh everyone's mind. So it's that's about this guy Freddie Quill, who is a World War II veteran. He comes back 
from the war. It's a very, you know, he's having a lot of trouble adapting back into society, given what the events that happened in World War II. It's also suggested that he's um, has had some issues with mental health yes. uh, related to his, because his mom has also had issues, um, presumably hereditary. There's also some implications that he's engaged in some pretty heinous acts uh, before his time in the military. But in any case, he's definitely someone who is not fitting in uh, to American society post-World War II. Yes. And there's a great, I, I think one of my favorite, maybe my favorite part of the film is the first like 25 minutes or so before we meet the master and the cause and all of that, where we see Freddie adjusting to life back home. Yeah. I guess it's it's actually a little over 25 minutes, I think. I think it's like a 30, 35 minutes till we start to see the master. Um, but it's, it's interesting. It reminded me a lot. There's this great documentary by John Huston which didn't get released until 1980, but he was commissioned by the uh, United States government to make this film. I think it's called Light. Let There Be um, Light. Let There Be Light. That's yes. It. Yeah, which, this was actually said, a, uh, ins a, that was actually a big inspiration on The Master from what I understand. Oh, wait, yeah, it had to have been. Because I, 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 I have seen Let There Be Light like recently, -ish, like in the last year. Um, and I hadn't seen The Master with it for a couple of years. So I was, um, when I was watching that, I was like, oh my, oh my God, that's just straight, let there be light. That's, that's wild. This is exploring a lot of the same ideas. Of course, that's a documentary, but um, yeah, I, I think this movie does have a lot of really interesting things to say about kind of PTSD and, uh, you know, soldiers adjusting into society. And that's all right before we even get to the whole, you know, master, yeah. um, plot and the whole you know kind of dominant submissive role reversal type of situation that develops from their relationship this movie's also a little kinky um actually <laughs> it's, it's quite it um, is. it's, it's it, quite uh, i mean i think i think i mean i just i don't mean to sound disrespectful but i i'm, I'm sure paul thomas anderson has a very interesting bdsm chart like i just <laughs> i just know it I know he must. I know he must. Like checking all, off mushrooms, mushrooms, yeah, and mushrooms like poison. And, uh, poison, right? And there's <laughs> even some poison. Yeah, there's poison in this film. Yes. Too, that, that, that draws two of the characters close which, to each other. Which is an interesting through line with Phantom Thread um, in the sense that I would say both, uh, well, both films obviously deal with people choosing to to be poisoned. And I think that kind of idea um it's kind of well when when they r arrive in i think philadelphia is where they are master has that that little speech about i'm in love we've all been in love um when you're in love you experience great pleasure and great pain and i kind of think that's what both the poison in this film and and the the mushrooms and phantom thread are kind of showing where you know like you you're choosing to to poison yourself because the act of doing so brings you closer to, you know, Alma in Phantom Thread or, or Master in, in the case of the Master. Or Freddy in, uh, yeah, yeah, in both ways, yeah. Yes, but at Absolutely. the same time, you're hurting yourself uh, for, that, for that connection with them and that love, which I think is an interesting um, through line. Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah, there's actually quite a bit of a, yeah, I think both films have a good bit in common. I, it, this made me want to revisit Phantom Thread because it's been, as I said, I've only seen that once, but it's a, 
interesting point. Yeah, I think it is. So it's like this, I, I guess I should finish this. This was like, he goes, meets this guy, the master, who is ahead of this new uh, movement called The Cause, which is all about um, kind of, I think they call it time travel. What is it? It's time yeah, travel. The time therapy maybe or the time hall time travel therapy or something yeah. right and it's all this idea is that we you know have basically lived many lives throughout you know the existence of the world and through this meditation you can unlock you know past lives and whatnot it honestly like to me i mean there is some stuff in here that it's like okay clearly the master is just talking out of his ass yeah but it, uh, that, like, that whole idea does not sound as ludicrous to me as something like Scientology, which right. I, I'm sorry, Scientologists who are listening. I please don't, you know, come after us. Um, <laughs> trying to trying to make this as like you know PG thirteen as possible here, but um, it's yeah no I I think it is a very interesting idea, and I almost think the movie isn't like I think the movie isn't quite as aggressive to some of the ideas here um, presented by the master with relation specifically to the cause. Yeah. Um, at least as I, from what I had remembered. Now, obviously this idea that like this can f cure leukemia and this can cure, you know, cancer and all of your problems will be solved is pretty phony and it reminded me of some of the you know um you know like the worst of the like you know tv preachers or the yeah. tv you know like, like you know kind of some of those like very um you know kind of phony-esque uh, not even ask just phony you know prophets and whatnot but i i was fascinated I, I i'm still you know i finished the film like two hours ago or so and i'm just fascinated to death by this idea that we might have lived you know all of these lives and there is if there's some way to just kind of unlock some of that knowledge and is that what draws people together have you ever like met someone cash and you just instantly are like this person this person and i we have a connection and we're it doesn't necessarily have to be romantic it's just one of those connections sure. that you get right yeah and I, I was like oh well this is an interesting explanation we can just kind of i mean i, I don't i'm not saying man i sound like i'm advocating for this make-believe cult well i, I will here. say that the, the idea that that your spirit exists outside of your body and is captured through the act of conception let's say that's actually i i don't i can't i don't know if if it's a tenet of buddhism particularly but i know that it's a belief that some of the stoic philosophers actually considered to be you know somewhat true because if you that you know the the logic is that matter can't go away it only changes form and so the energy that that is going into you to make you up has to come from somewhere and has to go somewhere and so their their logic is that is that you know when when you're conceived that energy for lack of a better you know phrase captures your spirit uh into your body mm -hmm. And when you die, it is released back out. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't read as much philosophy as I should have. Um, but yeah, no, no, I, I, I've heard similar sentiments to this before, of the idea of reincarnation and even 
not even just reincarnation, but this idea of like what you were talking about, just the spirits passing on uh, throughout various lives. It's very interesting, kind of a bit of a tidbit from the film, but it was something that struck me that I had never really thought about when I think of this movie. Um, and I was just interested and thought we would, we would talk a little bit about it. Yeah. So I was, I was, uh, thank you for that insight. I'm very, very interested. I might read some philosophy for the next couple of days. But okay, so I but back onto the story here. Um, I think this movie is really interesting. I, I think what you, I, I think you're going to have a lot more to say about this than I am. But I'm very fascinated by this idea, the relationship between the master and Freddy. Because on one hand, it does feel very, you know, the master immediately takes this interest into Freddy. And it's, it, it's one of the things that I'm still questioning. Um, and I, I remember questioning this the first time. It's like, yeah, if, if you take away the cause, if the cause is phony, right? Let's say it is. Why is the master so interested in this drunk, you know, perverted, um, socially inept guy who's, you know, probably who's done heinous acts both in war and outside of war? Uh, what about him draws the master in? And I think there's that one little moment early on where he's talking about this dragon, right? Do you remember, remember this scene? Yes, where he's, that, yes. I think that's a crucial moment where he's like, I, I see the dragon and I grab hold of it and I put a leash on it and then, yes. know, make it roll over or what have you. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the hell out of that, uh, <laughs> that monologue. I'm sorry, Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> Uh, but it is, I mean, it's a really, really interesting sequence. And I think uh, it says a lot about this film. And I was wondering if you had anything to say uh, or to expand on between the relationship between Freddie Quill and the master. Yeah, that, that sequence you mentioned, I, uh, I agree. It is very important and uh, semi-related, but th this movie lets you really see how good of a, director PTA, PTA is in a lot of ways, but specifically one I noticed is the way that he maintains sight lines because every time there's a, there's a close up on, you know, master or Freddie or whoever, you know exactly who they're looking at uh, before it shows you just because of the, the way it's been, you know, blocked. So there's that, that part when he says uh, it stays on command and then he looks and you know he's looking at Freddy before you even see him. And then, you know, it cuts to Freddy and, and sure enough, their, their sight lines match perfectly. And there's a similar, um, near the end when, he, when the second book is released, he does that same, uh, you know, the secret is laughter and then he looks at him and, you know, sure enough, it's like a perfect match. That's like just a, a side tangent, but I find that really interesting in this film. Um, but, oh, yeah, the, the, oh, oh, sorry, just, I was like, I think the close-ups that you mentioned are just, Wow. I mean, they are like Sergio Leone close-ups. They are in the faces of these performers. They are. Uh, or actors. I can't believe I just called actors performers. They are, but, you know, that's <laughs> what it is. But, yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it, that was another thing that struck me on this watch is just the technical achievement um, of this film. I mean, all of the little technical bits that you mentioned, the eyeline matches. Um, and, I mean, of course, just the, this just cinematography as a whole is really quite stunning. Um, um, just, just wanted to bring that up for a bit, but continue with yes. this. So um, the way I see their relationship is that, and you mentioned what, without the cause or the cause aside, you know, 
why would he have interest in Freddie? And I think the answer really is that uh, oh, I'm not going to say the answer, but my, my, my thoughts about it are that without the cause, um, ma obviously master would not exist, which would, which would absolve him of a need for Freddie. Because if you look at, um, they're kind of, they are reflections of the other in a way, but at the same time, each is, is kind of, what the other would like to be in a sense. So, you know, master being, being master has to have people to be the master of, obviously. I mean, that's, that sounds redundant, but um, so without that, he, he is not master. And I, but at the same time, I think in Freddie, he sees what he wishes he was able to do. Right. That recklessness. Yes. And it's very appealing and he, and he can't, he can't do that now because of his position as master. He, and, and there's that scene in the bathroom between him and Peggy where she says, like, uh, you can do whatever you want, but as long as I don't find out about it, you know, so. And, and there's a couple other things, like, um, I think. That's the, that's the scene where she's uh, performing a sexual act. <laughs> yes, yes. While well says that. just <laughs> um, And. I think I think also he master. It's not really touched upon, but I think master is also an alcoholic, like Freddie. Um, oh, certainly. Yeah, that, that's certainly. I mean, because the first big scenes we see with him is at the wedding of his daughter, right? Yes. Um, and the I mean, he is plastered. <laughs> he is. His, his face is so red too. So red, and you also have that other scene where he and uh, Freddie will drink. Uh, Freddie makes these like likes to throughout the film is making some sort of what looks like the worst concoction <laughs> yeah, um, of alcohol. It looks yeah. le it, it, it has to be paint thinner and like God only knows what else. Uh, but there's, the, there's a scene where they both drink a bit of that. There's also that scene at the party where I assume the master is quite drunk uh, right before. So, yeah. yeah. Right before that sequence that you just described with the, uh, with the wife who's played by Amy Adams brilliantly, by the way. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think, um, I think you're right there. I think there is a, he is an alcoholic. I think Freddie sees in the master what he could be if yeah. he only had, you know, or, or you know, and, and over the course of the film, I think he kind of tries to get there where he has this, he, he, if he could realize his quote, like full potential or whatever it is that made the master, uh, get his position, which is probably money. I would assume that he was the master was probably a pretty wealthy person. Uh, you know, you no know, one no one becomes a doctor and starts, you know, <laughs> yeah. a movement like a cult without any money, unless you're Jesus. Uh, I'm not <laughs> saying that Christian, ah, man, but if the Christians are going to come for me, Christianity. I'm not. I'm trying to say that, but you know, you know, Jesus was not rich. That he wasn't. But I think the master was. Um, no, but I think that's interesting. I, I, I wanted to ask you a bit because I, 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 this might be going to be a bit related because um, you have this really great video essay on the master, which is available on YouTube on your channel. Oh, yeah. um, and it, you talk about the whole, the concept of the great American novel and how you feel that the master really encapsulates what that, that really encapsulates the great American novel. Uh, in the 21st century. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. I don't know if you had anything more to say about Freddy and the master. I know I'm kind of moving on from that. If you have 
I will say that um, you mentioned the dance scene before the bathroom scene uh, between Master and Peggy, um, where all the women are are naked, right? And Master's dancing around, and right. and, and you mentioned that um, you you felt like Freddie saw Master as like what he would like to be, and I think that scene is kind of uh, is it, it kind of validates what you're saying there because it's obviously from Freddie's perspective, and you know he sees master drunk and he's dancing around and he's got all these women around him um and you know they're not actually naked obviously but to freddie to freddie yeah. they are and so i think you're right in saying that that he's that he would like to be master because you know from his point of view he sees this guy who can do anything that he wants or so he thinks he has all these women around him and he's he's pretty much free to you know behave as he as he pleases right um, so i, I also yeah. Oh no, no. I think that's right. I, I think that's that's a great point, and I think that scene does a great job of that. I also think that both Freddie and the master are similarly short-tempered, and I don't know if you have anything yes. to say about that. But it's like I, I noticed that this, uh, you know, both of them will lose their temper uh, quite frequently. I, uh, of course, Freddie's much more violent, um, and that we can associate that, I guess, or we could pin that on the military. Um, and also, I think he is a physically probably stronger. I don't know. I don't, I don't know quite what what this how how phys- I would imagine that Freddie is a pretty physically intimidating person. Um, if you were to encounter him, more so than the master, I don't I don't quite know. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough to say because sometimes you know Philip Seymour Hoffman. I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to go up against him. I think I think he could do some damage, but <laughs> I don't know. But yes, no, but I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I just, no I was just gonna, I just wanted to make the, I, I think that they both do have a similar temperament. Um, yes, I and I, and I think that that's another thing that kind of brings them together. And I think you're, that, that, that's such a great point when you see that scene where all the women are, uh, of course, naked in Freddie's point of view, and that it is very much projecting himself onto the master. I think that's a really great observation. Um, Oh, the, uh, yeah, the, the great American novel and the master. So, um, my, my whole, the reason I even, I even made that and that, and that was before I knew, um, I was in film club or knew any of, of you folks. Uh, but I was, when I was watching the master again and I was like, you know, this just feels like if this was a book, it would be something you would read in, in an American literature class. I mean, not that that's like the highest, you know, of the highest esteem a book can have, but it just feels like it, it to me, it only makes sense if this story happens here, you know, this just has something American about it. I mean, obviously it's say in the fifties in America, but you know, it's, you have, it's, it's right off world war two. And so you have, Freddie, who is kind of this embodiment of, of, you know, societal decay and, you know, kind of feeling pointless after the war, you know, which is, which is a common after effect of, of, you know, going to war. And then you have master on the other side, who is trying to re trying to regain that kind of sense of, uh, you know, authority and solidarity and, and, I guess in the more high-minded sense, humanity. Um, and there's that struggle there, um, you know, between those two ideas, which, you know, 
frequently happens after a mass, you know, a global conflict like World War II. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. And uh, as I mentioned in the article and in the video, this, this film exists, you know, purely because of the master-slave dialectic, which is, uh, which Hegel coined in Phenomenology of the Spirit, I think, which um, basically it says that in the conflict of, of two conscious consciousnesses that are trying to each subordinate the other, the act of subordinating one ensures that the other cannot recognize uh, the other's own like self consciousness which is a really weird and like cyclical kind of idea and obviously Hegel explains it much better than I do but that's effectively they each become reliant on the other and and neither are able to fully subordinate each other and in a broader sense you know when like in, in capitalism, for example, which I have the quote from Richard Wolff in the, the right. before it's I even great. before I even knew who he was actually, um, <laughs> and you know he talks about like in in a capitalist society you have to have uh, the capitalist has to have labor obviously because labor is is the source of of you know commodities and, and anything, but at the same time the labor has to have the capitalist to be paid and so you can't have one without the other even though each one is uh, trying to subordinate, for lack of a better word, the other. So, you know, and it's like the idea that what's good for the capitalist is bad for the worker and what's good for the worker is bad for the capitalist, you know, that kind of idea. Um, and so I think that's also pretty interesting. Um, and it's not so much of a capitalist point of view in this film, but just a broader sense of authority versus someone who is under subjugation, I guess you could say. Um, I found that really interesting. And also going back to Pin Pinchon, uh, I think, I believe there are several deleted scenes from this movie that actually are from, that are references to V by Thomas Pinchon. Like I, there's um, a scene in V where the main character goes to New York in the sewers and he like goes hunting for alligators. And that was actually a, um, a deleted scene from the master, which I find really, was, yeah. Uh, where Freddie, where Freddie went and, and looked for alligators in the sewers. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not in the film, but um, it speaks to PTA's kind of um, consciousness about American literature, I would say, you know, going back to pension mm -hmm. and, uh, this movie being inspired partly by John Steinbeck's uh, life. Um, so it just, it just has that kind of literary feel to me, especially just in the way that you have to kind of piece it together. And it does wander, it does wander and, you know, meander and at the end you're left, you know, with whatever you, whatever you can really make of it, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. That was like a really long-winded. No, I think it's quite good. I think it's quite interesting. I think it. I think that really encapsulates a lot of what you say in the um, video that you have up on YouTube. I think it's a very fascinating look at the master, uh, viewing it as you know the great American novel. 
And I think it does encapsulate a lot of those ideas that you just put forward. I think it's a really interesting point of view. I think we should mention, which we, we haven't done all podcasts, which is crazy. Johnny Greenwood. Yes. He's the composer. He does all the music for all of PTA's films. Um, and wow, this is, uh, this, this score is really, really terrific. I think we're going to play a piece at the beginning or at the end uh, of this podcast. Oh, so be sure nice. to listen. But it's, um, I mean, it's a really just, you know, unnerving score. And, and, and sometimes, you know, the score for John, that Johnny Greenwood will put in with a PTA film doesn't always work for me. Um, you know, I know this might be a hot take, but like as good as There Will Be Blood is, there are moments where I am like, I wish there was no music here. Yeah, I can um, agree with that. And, I, and I, 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 I'm not going to be able to cite specific moments because I haven't seen the film in a hot second, but there were definitely some sequences where I am like, okay, this is getting a bit out of hand. But I didn't feel that way about The Master. I don't feel that way about Phantom Thread um, or Inherent Vice, which is mostly just soundtrack. Same with Boogie. Boogie Nights has a great soundtrack. Um, but I, uh, yeah, no, I think the music here is very critical to the atmosphere that uh, PTA builds. And I think Johnny Greenwood really knocks it out of the park. Um, and I also think that the performances here are off the charts, just oh, incredible. Yeah. I mean, like, we, we haven't really talked about, a lot about performances in PTA's work today, but I think uh, this movie just, you know, I, I, I have a letterbox. I usually don't write many reviews. I'll usually do one or two sentences, and I'll, all I put was, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. Because he, I mean, what he does in this film as the role of the master is just absolutely incredible. And um, it, it's so sad that he's not with us anymore. Yeah, but he, it's a great um, loss. It is a great loss. And I, I was also like thinking today, like, I mean, that, like, just when I was watching this film, the amount of just talent that is put in here, even like, uh, you know, like Jesse Plemons and Rami Malik, who yeah. weren't big at the time, um, you know, make appearances. And there's, uh, you know, Laura Dern is in this, and Amy Adams, and mm -hmm. Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman. There's one actress who's in this who I meant to pull up, um, who's it was in last year's Britney Runs a Marathon. Um, very funny comedian, very funny comic actress uh, who makes an appearance, and I was just kind of taken aback, like, "Oh, I don't remember her in this. This is crazy." He has one scene, um, but it's a—I mean, it's a really impressive cast. Um, I don't think the film is quite as, you know, meandering as something like Inherent Vice. But right. I will say that this film, there's a brief moment here for like 20-ish minutes where I start to lose a little bit of patience with it. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that, I, I think it's intentional, actually. Um, yeah, it's I when, I think you know exactly what I'm about to say. I think it's when the, um, when Freddy comes back after he and the master were arrested after a confrontation outside of Laura Dern's house. Yeah. Um, who's, I think it's Helen. I think Helen is her name, but it is. Uh, yeah, Helen's house, played by Laura Dern, and uh, Freddie comes back, and then they decide that they're going to do all these exercises with Freddie mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I would assume, kind of control his um, erratic behavior. Um, and it's a very, it, you know, it's like ten, fifteen, maybe. I mean, it might be twenty minutes or so of just like, you know, a lot of 
you know, uh, repetitive and redundant yeah. activities. And some of these activities are, are quite interesting. Um, you have Amy Adams reading a sexually explicit story and Freddie's asked not to react. You have Rami Malek telling, um, I'm, I'm not even using the characters' names here, but it's like, <laughs> you know, smart. you're having these, these yeah. different people and they're, um, you know, kind of trying to provoke Freddie and get him to kind of control his reactions. You have this incredible sequence, um, although I was, I mean, it, it got on my nerves, but it is an objectively great, uh, you know, idea. I mean, a great sequence and just as a general, and as a whole, as a general, as a whole, <laughs> um, where Freddie is asked to walk across a room and yes. uh, touch, a, touch a window and he has to walk across and touch a wooden wall and he's asked to describe uh, what he is feeling. And I mean, they must, they, they, in the film, they make him do this for the entire day. Um, it's a very, you know, just excruciating sequence to watch. It's like, you know, by yeah. the 10th or so time, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is just, this is getting a lot, Paul. This is getting real. This is getting yes. to be a lot. <laughs> but, it's, but it is a very interesting uh, sequence. And I think that there is a reason for putting that in the movie. And I think, you know, the more I think about it, because when I initially wrapped today's viewing, I was like, man, I just, I forgot how that bit kind of drags. And I was like, that's probably intentional because it's this, you know, we're meant to feel the repetitiveness and the like redundancy and the kind of like, you know, of course it's not going to work. Uh, you know, all these exercises to try and control um Freddie's behavior in person. I, I think it's a very interesting sequence. And so I, I, I will say it does drag a bit, but I think it's for yeah. purpose. You know, it's a, it's a purposeful, purposeful, slow bit. Um, yeah. but it, I mean, it's just one of the many incredible sequences that I keep thinking about um, when I think about this film. And I think, uh, I think we've touched on a good bit of this. Yeah. And uh, going back to the score for that sequence, the I, I do love the music a lot in that part. It's very um, like clock-like, you know, very, very rhythmic. And there's a part where actually I think it's when he's sitting on the uh, the uh, radiator, and it's like the music actually sounds like a clock ticking, like ch 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 you know. And he's sitting there, and he's like smoking a cigarette, and he's you know getting pissed off at what he's doing. Um, I found that pretty effective. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you mentioned great sequences, and I and for me the scene that I think I, I whenever I think of like my favorite scene from any movie I think it's probably the first processing scene um mm. that they have uh and I will say the first time I saw it even though I did you know leave kind of bewildered that scene did stick with me because there's something so I don't know raw in it, uh, it as you mentioned you know the the performances are, are fantastic in this movie but I think in that scene in particular there's just there's just such chemistry between the two of them and it's it's and I think it's only really really matched again at the very end and they um and they're you know kind of goodbye scene right um but it's I always touch and see yeah it is and I always find that and the uh the first processing scene very you know effective and um sentimental even Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I definitely do. I, I mean, that I'm, I must have seen that that processing scene so many. I mean, it's a, it's really an incredible. It's, it, I agree with you. It's it's the best scene in the movie, and it happens 
within the first hour, but it is really, really, I, I'm not saying the film peaks there. There's a, plenty of other great yeah. stuff, but it is just like one of the most, just like, you know, I mean, what Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I, I had never been a huge, before I saw this, I had seen like, I had seen Gladiator and Walk the Line. Those were the two <laughs> yeah. Joaquin Phoenix movies I had seen before The Master. And I was like, you know, The Master, like, uh, I'm going to try it. I'm sure Joaquin Phoenix is a fine actor. I, I never found him to be particularly amazing. Um, and then after this, I was just like, okay, Joaquin, <laughs> yeah. one of the greats. Uh, I think he is terrific in this movie. I, I wanted to, before we go, I wanted to talk about the very end of this movie because the, you mentioned, so it's the Master and Freddy eventually split up and uh, it's we can guess that a few years maybe have gone by or a year or so. It's hard to say exactly how much time has passed, but for how long they've been apart. Yeah. And um, the master has moved the uh, cause over to London and asked Freddie to visit him. Um, and they have one final, you know, kind of conversation. It's a very, I mean, it's a very effective scene, like you mentioned before. There's that beautiful moment. Um, I mean, you can just see it in Joaquin's face when he pulls out the Cools cigarettes. Oh, yeah. And it's just this devastating, like, ah, you crushing. Crushing. And you know that these two have uh, such fondness for each other, but it's Mm -hmm. just never going to, um, you know, amount to anything. It's a love Um, story. I mean, for for sure. Oh, oh, certainly. Most certainly. Um, But then what I find very interesting is that it, it doesn't end there. You know, we still have one little bit um, where, you know, Freddie's in a bar in London and he sees this girl and they kind of make eye contact. And then the next, next scene is them uh, engaging in intercourse. And it's really, I mean, what happens is uh, Freddie basically starts uh, processing uh, yeah. Like the master did to Freddy, uh, he starts processing this um, woman yeah. who he's. Uh, we don't even get a name. Oh no, we do get a name. Uh, she says her name in the process. It's what is Wynn. Win Manchester. Yes, Win Manchester, and um, I find that really quite an interesting uh, little sequence to end on. I, I yeah. almost wonder if it is that is the implication that uh, Freddy is now a master of sorts, that he is now free of um, his master, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, or is it that Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, like that relationship is still just going to always be with him and he's never going to be able to get rid of it per se or I don't quite know. I don't really know what to make of this final sequence. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, Cash, because I know this is such an important film for you, and I was wondering what, if you had any thoughts on that final scene. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do, and they're kind of related to the first processing scene, if you don't mind uh, me talking about that one first. So the the second the second processing scene, the scene you're talking about, is is explicitly sexual, right? And I think that the first processing scene is also subtextually very, uh, for lack of a better word, very sexual in a way, because, you know, it, 
it starts out and uh, <laughs> I mean, this is going to get, you know, kind of not explicit, but you know, it starts out and Philip Seymour Hoffman, he drinks the, he drinks the, po the poison. He's like, Oh, Oh God, Freddie, you know? And so then they start this the processing scene and there's this huge buildup of tension. Um, and you see master is kind of taking control of Freddie, you know, through his words. Um, and then there's that big release through uh, both Freddie's tears and, you know, his outburst. Um, and then at the end, there is like the classic after sex film cliche where they both smoke cigarettes. Right, and, yes. And so I kind of see that as like a, uh, as like the subtextual version of what explicitly happens in, in the end, like you're talking about where you see Freddie and he is, he is actually having sex and he uses the the same kind of technique i guess that was used on him and he uses it on on when um and I, I would agree that i think i think that's what that you said that you felt like it was freddie becoming a master of sorts and i think that is right um because you know he he effectively does to to win what what master did to him and, but what I find even more interesting is that it doesn't end there, but there, the last shot is back at the very beginning of the movie when he's laying next to the, uh, the, the sand. sand woman. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, you know, I think that's one of the most beautiful endings I've ever seen just because the music and then the way, you know, this, the shot is, is framed and everything. It's just such a, such a wonderful ending and it, and it does take you right back to the start which um you know thematically has relevance to you know the time hole and going back in time to you know your past lives or and things like that mm. um but i think it also kind of speaks to freddie's realization that uh you know partly because of what master says about um if you find out how to live without a master, let the rest of us know because you'll be the first person in history. Um, right. So I think that kind of speaks to Freddie realizing that no master can help him with, you know, can, can, can cure him first of all. And that I think he finds some sort of comfort in, in being the way that he is um, in a weird way. And I think that's probably, yeah. it's probably why it would, that's what, that's my, uh, logic for why it would end with him you know at the very start um after he's gone through this whole journey and effectively learned not much except for the you know what he takes with him that he uses on when gotcha well i i, I think that you might be correct i think that's a great analysis so i'm glad well i, I we we probably should wrap this up yes it's been about i think we we're going to be right at 90 minutes which should be an exciting awesome. exciting time it might be the longest podcast ever which will be fun <laughs> um, Cash, thank you so much for coming here. I had a wonderful time. So did I. Um, love, lo always love. Please come again. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I look forward to, you know, hopefully, you know. I mean, we're we're, we're both in classes together. We'll see how it goes, but um, <laughs> you know, we have, uh, one way or the other, we will be in contact soon. So I'm excited for that. Uh, hopefully, it'll all uh, turn out okay. Uh, for the listeners, thank you again uh, for listening. Uh, next week, we're going to have another episode. Uh, still, I think it's actually going to be Chris Board, editor-at-large, is going to be on the podcast. 
he and I are working on a piece that's supposed to drop on Monday. Um, supposed to drop on Monday. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> but uh, I believe he's going to be on the podcast next week. But, you know, sometimes things change. Thank you again for listening. Please stay safe and have a great one, folks. Get thee behind me, Satan. I want to resist, but the moon.